I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there and welcome to the New Health Club podcast. Psychedelics are experiencing a renaissance these days, developing into a tool to help us go through life. But what are LSD, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health, personal progress or even optimization? Will they change our lifestyles and lives forever? I'm sure they will. On the new Health Club podcast, I talk to real innovators, leaders and disruptors from the emerging world of psychedelics. Enjoy. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs can be punishable by law. Please keep this in mind. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. Dr. Bronner is the top-selling soap in the U.S. natural marketplace. They only use the purest organic and fair trade ingredients. They are third generation of Jewish soap makers from Heilbronn. I always bought the soap at Trader Joe's in California and I loved it very much. Little did I know about the CEO or the Cosmic Engagement Officer, David Bronner, who I met in Nuremberg a few weeks ago. I have to say, David is an awesome cat. This is how he describes people he likes a lot. <laughs> we forgot to take a selfie since our topic was so exciting. Well, we talked psychedelics and how a company is run by a cosmic engagement officer, someone with psychedelic experience and lifestyle. And also what that could mean for a business plan or a company in general in the future. Dr. Bronner is involved in a new psychedelic world, is supporting MAPS, where David sits on the board, and there's a Dr. Bronner $1 million pledge and unity support of the psilocybin therapy and drug addiction treatment and recovery acts in Oregon and decriminalize nature campaigns around the U.S. In this podcast, we also talk about David's visit in Heilbronn. He showed me pictures of stumble stones from his Jewish ancestors killed in Theresienstadt and Auschwitz. And we are talking about if Holocaust trauma could be cured with the help of psychedelics. So please listen to David and his Dr. Bronner journey. Well, thank you so much for meeting the New Health Club podcast in this Twin Peaks like oh surrounding <laughs> today in Nuremberg. <laughs> so this is David Bronner. We're very excited to have you on the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, everybody knows the soap for sure, but mm. it's just a little part of your activities. So maybe you introduce yourself. What is your relation to the current psychedelic renaissance? Sure. 
Um, yeah, so I'm Cosmic Engagement Officer, CEO at Dr. Bronner's. Um, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I guess uh, I'm on the board of MAPS. Uh, I passionately believe in the integration of psychedelic and plant medicine allies in a, in a global culture is um, necessary for us to heal up our traumas, our depression, addictions, and fundamental disconnection f from nature and each other. And um, yeah, wake up and care about the huge environmental and social problems we're facing. Um, so <clears throat> I guess my origin story was we were just in Amsterdam um, where I traveled after college. And in college, well, what to say, like I was growing, yeah, um, I guess I'll just back all the way up to my granddad, Dr. Brauner, was himself a third generation German Jewish soap maker. Um, he, uh, he came up in the guild system of the time, and uh, his, gr his grandfather first began manufacturing soap in Malpine in the basement in 1858, uh, also named Emmanuel. So by the time my granddad came of age, his dad and two uncles were running, uh, had founded a big factory in Heilbronn and were producing, uh, I think, most of the liquid soap that was in public washrooms and up in the Zeppelins and a uh, really, really big enterprise. And my granddad was a very intense guy and he was very Zionist and um, just had a lot of newfangled ideas about soap making and was clashing with his dad. Uh, and uncles all the time, so he was like, you know, stop mixing politics and soap, you know, like, you know, it's just, and, and more out of the generational conflict than anything about the uh, rising tide of fascism. In, in 1929, he, um, he emigrated to the U.S., so, the, you know, the eventual dimensions of, of Hitler and Nazism were not yet apparent. It was more of a generational clash, um, and he, he became a consultant to the U.S. soap industry and was helping launch products and design factories and, and stuff like that. Um, he, he, he met his uh, and he married a woman Paula my dad's mom uh, had three kids in his time and is also becoming increasingly desperate to get his family out of, out of Germany uh, his two sisters got out um, Lottie his younger sister got out at the age of 21 and 36 and ended up in uh, kibbutz and then Palestine and now Israel um, and Louisa got out at 38 um, and came to the U.S. and eventually became a professor of German at UMass Boston, but first mm -hmm. was a chemist and actually developed the waterproofing compound for the American GIs, paratroopers into the Korean War. We got no credit and in disgust quit and became a Ph.D. Uh, German literature. She just loved German culture, but, you know, just wrote in her, her poetry this the, the tragedy and enormity of, of this culture just ripped her apart, you know, her family, everything apart wrote in Hebrew and German and English, just very, very powerful, and shared my granddad's, so my granddad's, um, and, and she was all about uniting the humanities and, and science and, and sort of the deep heart and love at the heart of existence, and, and that was definitely what my granddad was all about. So Dr. Bronner, with the, uh, so, so their parents, they tried to get him out, and Louisa, I just recently found this out, reading Garrow's, our German-American uh, Ace, who runs our agricultural programs, mm -hmm. grew up in Cologne, has really been helpful in introducing us to our, our, our history, our German-Jewish history, and he's writing a book, and I just found out that Louisa had actually gotten, had worked with her parents to get them papers, and they were ready to immigrate to America, but then Germany and America declared war, and the borders were closed, and, but like a lot of the Jews, they thought, or bourgeois Jews, they thought they were going to ride out the madness. Um, you know, they're an industry, a semi-privileged position. 
but stayed till it was too late. The factory was Aryanized in 1939, and they were deported and killed in 42 and 44. In Auschwitz? Uh, Auschwitz and Theresienstadt. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, Bertolt, Bertolt and Francisco, I think Bertolt got sick or, or in, in Theresienstadt. Um, and, yeah, you know, all, all the different ways Jews were killed or whatever. But... Anyway, so the, the enormity of this tragedy, and, and also my granddad's wife was got really sick and died when my dad was two. So granddad's going through this immense personal tragedy, and his answer to this was that, you know, was to basically realize that, in, that the next Holocaust in the nuclear-armed world, if we don't realize our transcendent unity across religious and ethnic divides and that all the faith traditions are at their best pointing at the same divine source and, you know, every person prays to God in his or her own language and there's no language she doesn't understand, you know, like that message of the one true religion of love at the heart uh, of, these, of these faiths, but, you know, when they take themselves literally and fundamentalist that's when it becomes a disaster and they make idols out of their beliefs and that closes down access to the source. But when you're open, and you know, it's all one and that was that's what we're all about. And he was passionate on his mission to promote this all one vision and went around the country lecturing on the all one peace plan. To, Your grandfather was Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah to, you know, and this is McCarthy era, era mm-hmm. Cold War, you know, he's just urgently like, we need to come together, we need to realize our transcendent unity. And found, and was basically selling his soaps on the side. Uh, really? Uh, uh, as he's going around lecturing, and realizes, you know, word gets out that, wow, these are, this is really good soap. So people <laughs> start coming to hear him speak, not to hear him speak, but to just get the soap and, and leave. <laughs> So that's when he, he downloaded his philosophy on the label of our soaps. So our soaps are like really famous for the all one philosophy that is on every bottle. That's uh, still on a bottle today, right? Yeah, this, this and it's a memorial of, to him, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's the all one God. And, and, the, and the company, well, he founded a religion, basically. It was the all one God faith, uh, which is still our corporate name, all one God faith. Or, or we do business as Dr. Bronner's. But he, he he felt the soap was, or he looked at the soap more to sell a label than the label to sell the soap. But he was an you know, early ecological pioneer. He brought the kind of German green ethic with him. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the American kind of health food movement, echo movement, there's a lot of German influence. And certainly um, the green, you know, just that whole green ethic. My granddad early on saw the, you know, in the post-World War era, this like turn to petrochemicals and synthetic fertilizers and plastics and um, you know just this whole wholesale turn to fossil fuel um, dependent economy and he saw the dangers of that and you know promoted what was somewhat out of fashion but he his 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 family soap which was concentrated versatile biodegradable and with the counterculture in the 60s that you know, came up, you know, the era of, like, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and the rising, you know, awareness of this, you know, ecocide, this ecological disaster on the earth, like a comet's hitting it, and then this war machine that won't stop, and, you know, this whole generation, you know, basically dropped out of the, of this, the dominant kind of paradigm, and, you know, trying to create an alternative world, you know, sustainable peace and love, and, and, and that's when our soap really caught fire. So the granads had this, you know, biodegradable soap. You could you wash your hair, your dishes, your dog, other side of the river, and not worry about mm-hmm. it. 
So, so the soaps became the iconic kind of, kind of product of the time, along with VW buses. And yeah, so it just uh, so you know, so I came up, you know, well, and so my granddad going off to save the world uh, wasn't the best father, and he put his, you know, he'd lost his wife. Um, he put his kids basically came up in a series of foster homes, which he financially supported. He checked in, but wasn't present. And my dad had a lot of anger towards my, my granddad. And so my dad went to the Navy, came out uh, after eight years and went to work for my granddad, though, and uh, oversaw and would go and, and run out a reactor in Los Angeles at a chemical specialty manufacturing firm and make the soap for my granddad. Um, but when, it was just a very difficult relationship. And when my granddad moved down to San Diego, my dad stayed up in L.A., to oversee the soap manufacturer, but he became the head of that operation. So I grew up, and my, me and my brother, Mike, who's, uh, we're 50-50 now at Bronner's, and it's mm -hmm. a totally family enterprise. Um, uh, we grew up working for my dad, and my dad developed, among other things, firefighting foam for structure and forest fires. And when you see foam on a big forest fire, uh, which is really good in a low visibility situation, you can see where the water drops, and it looks like a blizzard hit it. Um, then my dad's like, wow, this looks like, like, a, like a blizzard. So then he developed a version for Hollywood, a fake snow. So me and my brother grew up blasting foam on the world and each other, and it's a super ecstatic, beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful experience. Uh, in a way, it's an avatar of psychedelic experience, but we'll, I guess we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, so you kind of, I'm not going to say like pick up where your grandfather left a little bit, but you're also kind of very outspoken about, for example, decriminalization of mushrooms in California. I mean, this is like decriminalized California okay, so, so, yeah, so fast forward, I came up, my dad re rejected my grand, you know, he reacted against the cosmic trip of my granddad. Mm -hmm. He associated that as an escape. And my dad was all about family and community and just showing up and, and, and you know, being practical about what you can do. And this was the most mega example to both me and my brother as far as a moral upright, engaged, he didn't, you know, he was just an amazing, amazing, amazing man. Um, but, you know, and when I would hang out with my granddad, you know, my granddad was just 24-7 coming from the mountaintop on this all one, you know, we must unite this spaceship Earth, you know, we're all one or none. And it was just selling all over our heads. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just didn't get it. Um, and, you know, and I was raised Protestant, although I said the Shema in Hebrew and English as well with my Christian prayers, but by the time I was 13, I'm like, I rejected my faith. I was like, God so loved the world, why do you send his one, only son to this one spot? What about the Chinese? What about all the other planets? Um, but then in college, I was a biology major, and I was kind of getting discontent with this kind of scientific reductionistic worldview that consciousness mm -hmm. is just, you know, an adaptive trait, not that interesting, uh, beyond an evolutionarily whatever advantageous trait to have. I was like, well, that's kind of insufficient, um, and I was kind of dropped. Kind of also, I was a, I kind of dropped out of alcohol culture too. Starting to smoke a lot of mm -hmm. cannabis, and just realizing, wow, how much better this is to like just be with my friends on a real high vibration, sharing each other and, and going deep with each other and listening to music. And I remember I had a mushroom trip. What, when was that? Like in, in college? This is my junior year yeah. in college. So mm -hmm. I had this really important mushroom trip. It's my first, pretty much my first one, and. And that's the long answer to why I wanted to criminalize mushrooms. But um, in this experience, I just remember looking at my arm and 
saying like, whoa, what does it mean at a quantum level? I'm not different from the world. You know, at a quantum level, I'm just one continuum. And when I eat and poop, it's, the, it's like a river of energy. The world's pouring through me. You know, I'm one with the world, and the world is alive. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a way back, bigger self is going on than just me. And that was a just a really important experience to have in college. Um, but I still, you know, was still trying to figure things out. And then I guess after college, went to had a Euro pass, went to London, and then Amsterdam. To Amsterdam, yeah. And then in Amsterdam, yeah, just intersected the Cannabis Cup. Uh, and this is 95, so this mm-hmm. is um, the whole epicenter of the cannabis movement is in Amsterdam. Yeah, sure. in, in 1996, Prop 215 passed the Medical Marijuana Act in California, and a lot of people moved back to California. But 95, 96, I mean, just intersected like a perfect storm of just a lot of amazing people and met in my squat. So I was there in a hostel, and then I was like, I don't want to leave Amsterdam. So I ended up going to the squat <laughs> hotel and, after, and pretty much got adopted by the squat. Um, and so squat means like people who just live there and just, I mean, just to explain it for some people who might oh, never heard of it. Like. Yeah, so Amsterdam's got this enlightened policy, or mm-hmm. at least did, of that, you know, why have homeless people if you got all this vacant yeah. real estate? Mm-hmm. And basically, if you, if whoever owns the property is just speculating on it and doesn't, isn't doing okay. anything with it and can't demonstrate that they got some kind of plan and mm-hmm. within 12 months, it can be legally squatted. And so there's a process. You go into an empty big building, they, you know, the owner lawyers up, you lawyer up. There's like, you know, like a three-day process to figure out whether or mm-hmm. not it's squattable. And if it is, you get to be there for, you know, however long. And How long it takes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just really amazing. And so I was in a squat hotel, and there's like squat saunas or squat, all kind of <laughs> cool stuff. Very artistic, international, okay. activists, artist, artists, and... Um, and it was just, you know, and for me coming from America, I mean, I was just like, you know, I was so open and tolerant, you know, not only on cannabis policy, but, you know, sexuality, gender, just on so many levels, it was being really opened. And, um, but in my squat were uh, a couple of individuals from a church called Our Church that was formed in Arkansas in 1993 with cannabis as a sacrament, as a First Amendment a religious challenge, constitutional challenge to the to, to cannabis prohibition, and the feds. You know, I, I don't know how many people understand what Arkansas is like now, but let alone 1993. But not the place to try this. Anyways, they got busted up, and they were facing 10 years to life. Wow. Uh, you know, if they set foot back in the U.S. And for me, it was just going through this huge awakening of like. You know, I knew cannabis was important, but just, wow, man, like, yeah, it is a sacrament. It does help us be our more high vibration, awesome selves and, you know, disinvest from the whatever, you know, dumb moods and, and lower level whatever preoccupations mm-hmm. and just helps us get into a higher state and mode and just really realizing that the, that the drug war in an important respect was a, was, a, was a religious war on the sacrament of my people. And that the cannabis prohibition was, first of all, a racist proxy to go after Mexican and, and, and African Americans back in the 30s, and then became a proxy to go after the counterculture. Uh, and, you know, basically as a, you know, the way for the authorities to, you know, go after the, the dissidents. And um, so just really that was my huge political awakening and, and, and religious spiritual awakening. And in... Um, and then I was in a gay trans club on, on Acid and E... Um, just well yeah just going through huge experiences of like questioning of self you know just all the kind of homophobic sexist all the whatever 
stuff and just you know I'm not gay I'm not straight I'm not man I'm not woman I'm, I'm an incarnate soul here to get that down that wasn't just one club night where you had this yeah first let's say encounter with like a bigger with the divine yeah divine I mean, mm -hmm. just really getting down and deep and dying to I don't want to be this petty stupid whatever self I want to you know I want to live and serve and, and you know I mean one so one of them was my then partner um I had realized in the course of this night that how jealous I was of her adventures in Asia. She'd taken nine months and had all these erotic and intense and, you know, just amazing. But I think, yeah. I think it's, I mean, I hope you don't mind, but I think it's a very interesting topic that because there was just this book that came out, um, how's it called, Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships. Uh -huh. <clears throat> the, the interesting thing right now is that it borders <clears throat> and affects so many kind of like faces and like the parts of life also love if it comes to psychedelics so it's not your only your personal experience and then you come back home and it's like it's still your personal experience nothing will happen so it suddenly tick, 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 starts to change your whole mm -hmm. system right I mean even if you want it or not but um, that was you know these experiences um, and my final test on that one was actually I met this gay prostitute um You know, we just were hitting a coffee shop, and he had been trafficked as a kid, and you know, but we really oh. just kind of hit it off. Mm -hmm. And um, he was a cool guy, and he in the club, um, she was cross-dressed and hot and coming up, and you know, and I just had this mega experience. You know, I'm like, whoa, uh, okay, well, I'm gonna be with Chris now. I don't need to deal with this, you know. And then I was in the hole, you know, I was in this hot cold game with, with Spirit World, and you know, the wrong answer, dude. And uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like, dude, why would you not be down with anybody, you know, just coming to you to, like, just be awesome and embrace and have fun and just, you know, be incredible and, you know, what's your problem? You know, and just and open your heart and boom again, into the light, just, just blew up again, which also, again, was like me. Um, and then later, just, you know, nothing happened between me and Helena. Uh, you know, a lot of this was just my internal dynamics going sure, on. Sure, yeah. But ultimately, it was about me embracing myself, like these, like more, you know, like the gender straight jacket that, you know, the, the you know, don't be gay, don't be girly, just it fucks up everybody, and like that, you know, just really realizing the, you know, gender fluidity that I have, and um, that just so, you know, these whole, whole dimensions of ourselves are like warped. Like we look at like, like. Like, like foot binding in China you see these videos like oh man that's like some fucked up barbaric shit that they did over there but that's like metaphorically this is what we do like, like what we do to our kids like with all this all the gender straight jacket and, and you know, like this and all these energies of self are you know you become ashamed and you become all warped up and But when they release, there's this mega energy that releases, and, and that's what happened, basically. It was like just, you know, just, and it was this mega Kundalini just blowing me open. And uh, did, you combine, yeah. did you combine it with Kundalini Yoga? No. Um, Or did you do it at, at, this point, at this time very intensively already? Because I feel it's kind of a pre, kind of a preparation for a psychedelic experience. Yeah, no, man. I, uh, so, and, um, The base answer to that is no, and I, you know, and I was uh, basically, and, and because of it, it, I wasn't ready. So mm -hmm. I was basically in a classical spiritual emergency, like like Christina Stanislav Graf wrote a book called Spiritual Emergence Emergency. What what is that? Can can you talk about that a little bit? Like a, yeah, that like when you like 
like through whatever. I mean, Christina Groff, it was through the birth of her child, it was just thrown into this complete ecstatic unity experience, mm-hmm. but was kind of not prepared to deal with it. It was like borderline schizophrenic for a while, just like taking, I mean, it needed to do a lot of work to integrate the experience. Mm-hmm. And that, like some that our Western clinical model would diagnose, like I had a lot of symptomology of like, in a way like paranoid schizophrenia, not not, not in any way that would, I didn't, could totally carry on with my life, but I was just having to work out a lot of stuff mm-hmm. because my whole world had been shattered. And, um, and anyway, so yeah, I had to like really start to, you know, I was like born again in a way and very vulnerable and, the energies that were, you know, like these Kundalini energies were just, you know, I, I guess I wasn't ready for it. And it was just like a lot to, you know. So, but I did intensive journaling. And to, so the story goes, I like moved back to the States, sold all my stuff, moved back to Amsterdam to grow plants. I became, you know, I was like announced my parents, you know, like, the, you know, the drug wars, the religious war, all my people. If everyone stands up, we're going to end this thing. That's what I'm going to dedicate my life to doing. And, um... And I also, uh, in my squat, these guys were vegetarian, and they, they asked me, oh, yeah, why are you eating meat? And, you know, and I was in a wide open place, so I'm like, oh, yeah, why am I doing that? And, you know, just went up, smoked a bowl, and, like, just saw I have a knife in the store, and mm-hmm. I could shut, you know, here's a cow, and I can shut my empathy down and kill it, and, you know, it's possible for sure. But I could be in a, in a loving relationship, like, with my dog, and you know that could also be the case. So, you know, why why would I kill it? You know, why don't you just go live your life and I'll just eat vegetables? So like real. So I came back mm-hmm. and in a way, being vegetarian was more of a issue for my parents and me moving to grow plants because that's like a very personal thing. Because my I grew up barbecue, my dad, my mom's all the you know all the love she fed me. You know, and it's a hard hard thing um, for when that happens. But um, anyways, just a huge uh, part of my life. But things didn't quite work out in Amsterdam. I moved back to Boston to be with my that Chris and um, who, who was we would eventually get married because I, she got pregnant and miscarried. But I was a mental health counselor in the in the Boston Waltham area for paranoid schizophrenic populations and was really really good at it, um, mostly because of these experiences. And, but it gave me a lot of time to journal and read. So, so you mean yeah. because you had had these very specific experiences in Amsterdam and on your first kind of psychedelic experience made you basically more open and more kind of compassionate as a, um, as a therapist? Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and that I knew that, you know, I understood like where, you know, the paranoid delusion like world, like, you know, just like where I was at, um, was you know it was temporary mm-hmm. and within which it was life and death and just incredible initiation of, mm-hmm. of soul and spirit went down um but realizing well these guys are just caught they're just kind of caught and you know but being able to like you know sit with them and hold the space and talk them talk them you know hey if i see them like looping you know just kind of try to get them out of that you know sure yeah, well, and stuff and yeah, and great. and reagan had gutted the mental health system so people with no basically relevant qualifications including me uh were making up half the staff hours but you know and um but i you know it was actually an incredible part of my life and i did that for a year and a half 
journaling and reading like Stanislav Grof. Like I had no interpretive mm-hmm. framework whatsoever mm-hmm. for what had happened. You know, I was like, what? I have way more access to that experience now than I did, you know, for the first like year. I was like, you know, what the hell did you know happen? And so yeah, but but that book, Spiritual Emergence, was it was a key one, and it was basically pretty much I was a classical case of that you know having a, a mega mega experience like when you're not ready basically and yeah, um, can see you know, but but it was what set me on my path mm-hmm. and um to also and in terms of how you were thinking towards like how the company could be involved in, in let's say right. this okay so so yeah so uh endeavor you, right so you know my relevant uh decision in Amsterdam was I didn't want to have anything to do with my family company I was going to grow plants I was going to do that mm-hmm. but then coming back uh, as a mental health counselor and just you know and then uh, Chris uh, I got we got pregnant again you know and I was just having to grow and, and I was just journaling a lot and I was just like so so yeah so I was saying that um, you know I was just really growing and maturing and deepening um, and and got to a point and you know I had to really appreciate what my granddad was all about And was you know got to a point where it's like man if a company like Dr. Barnes were to offer me a job I'd go for it in a second and you know and I got to a point where I was ready to come work for my dad and you know like initially I'd want to do my own thing but I was realizing no this is an amazing opportunity and I let my dad know that I was ready to come in um, right around when uh, Maya was born so Maya was born on March 7th 1997 and same day that Dr. Bronner died. So, um, you know, just high-fiving in and out. And, um, and, and my dad was shortly after diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Um, so fortunately, I'd made the decision to come back into the company, um, you know, before that, and then had a very intense, amazing year with him uh, where he was, like, really downloading the ropes. And he lived to see my sister marry my brother-in-law, Michael Milo who's an hour, uh, my sister, Lisa Bronner, who has an amazing blog, Going Green with the Bronner, uh, with a, what is it, Going Green with the Bronner moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, and, uh, uh, and, um, and Michael Milam's our chief of, COO, our chief operations officer, and just an amazing man. So my dad lived to see them married, and um, that was his goal on June 6th of 1998, and on June 12th, like, he, he died. Um, to a, just, You know, just an amazing man, and that was my uncle Ralph's his brother's birthday, um, and yeah, and so I had to step up real young. I was like 24, 20, just turned 25 mm-hmm. maybe, and but I had vowed that you know coming to the company that I was going to run it as an activist engine, just like my granddad and my dad, and my dad and mom right before my dad passed, and my uncle Ralph organized the donation of what was effectively one third of our entire worth that was in the form of a thousand acres of land and donated to the Boys and Girls Club of uh, San Diego. And all of our advisors like, don't do that. You got huge estate taxes from my granddad. And like, that's a really bad move. And my dad just and my mom, you know, like we're doing this. And it really set the example that, you know, if we, you know, if we can at all afford to help make the world better in whatever way, that's what we're going to do. And that gift was symbolic too of like, kind of like the, you know, who were those beautiful mentors for my dad mm-hmm. that he, he, he loved like these youth programs and had some important male mentors that weren't his dad that really helped him. And so like giving, you know, to the boys and girls club was like a full circle. And, and, and my granddad, you know, he had the ovens of the Holocaust and he was doing the best he could, you know, and just, but yeah, you know, so just, he was, he, you're saying he survived. 
Okay. My grand, well, just his claimed his, his parents. So he was not, he came over in 29. Uh, oh, right, okay, so that's the, okay, yeah. that's him. okay. But just, you know, just but his parents. Just, yeah, his parents. Okay. His, in just a way, my granddad maybe wasn't the best dad, but, you know, well, well was just dealing with just a men's tragedy. So, so, so now you come in as a young guy in the company and you had had certain experiences. So, how would you say have your, let's say, your very intense psychedelic experience in Amsterdam, how has that kind of affected your, um, let's say, leadership from very early on, probably? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to say that my dad was really good about, like, son, I know you've had some real spiritual experiences, but you need to humble yourself. And, you know, like, you know, it's like, what's the most important thing in this company? And, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't know, the customers are soap. He's like, no, it's our employees. And, like, mostly a Mexican-American workforce. And just really just appreciating, like, yeah, you're right. You know, you know, I, you know I had this vision, oh, I'm going to move in, all these, like, who knows what kind of spiritual quote unquote people and you yeah. know and, uh, whatever dude it was like it's such stupid <laughs> thinking and whatever it was like just had to go through a real humbling you know mm -hmm. process and um and um but yeah but but uh, uh the those experiences fully informed you know my activism and so i mean i i, I shared that you know not, not only passionate about ending the drug war and integrating our psychedelic uh, allies as fast as possible, but waking up to the disaster of Western consumption and civilization on the planet. It's like a comet's hitting the planet, the sixth great extinction event, ecosystems in collapse, communities being destroyed to feed this like rapacious machine of, of our industrialized economy, you know, like the, and seeing that the, 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 the malaise of the Western way is like at heart like like there's this hollow emptiness that we're just trying to feed with consumer goods and domination and um yeah and so dedicated like you know how are we gonna like you know make the world better how are we gonna wake people up how do we shift people's consciousness and um you know and activate um in different ways so leveraging the company uh as a social and progressive engine to drive positive change And one of the first things we did is implement a five-to-one compensation cap. So nobody in our family makes five times more than our lowest paid warehouse position. And that all profits not needed for the development of the business go to the causes and charities we support. So that is, you know, like youth programs for sure, animal welfare. Where we donate to a lot of different uh, uh, farm animal welfare organizations and vegan and vegetarian advocacy organizations. Mm -hmm. um, Uh, organic, regenerative soil, um, you know, how, how do we farm, how do we make our farming ecosystems replicate a natural ecosystem, which is self-regenerating, there is no external chemical inputs. One-third of the earth's surface is under industrial agricultural mismanagement, you know, it's all chemical fertilizers and pesticides, it's destroying the ecosystems and, and just disrupting uh, uh, communities around the world, but if you can farm in a regenerative, organic way, um, Uh, you know, without chemicals, but with just smart, knowledge-intensive uh, crop rotations and intercropping and perimeter plantings for, for 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 pollinators and predator insects to control your pests and weed pressure, and um, you know, just really activating on a lot. You know, what are the big solutions that we need to be doing and mm -hmm. leveraging our own supply chains to make sure that um, you know, understanding that business as much as it's whatever you're doing in your head office is important. Like your supply chains has got way more impact. 10 times more people are involved, all the farmers, all the workers that are growing the coconuts and olives and the palm that are supplying our soaps. You know, who are they? How are they being treated? How are they taking care of their land? And realizing that we were buying 
oil from brokers on price and spec like everybody else does and having no visibility or transparency to how those are being grown and processed. And that's this race to the bottom around the world where, where corporations go in and you know put in plantations and countries with really lax environmental and social standards. Mm-hmm. So like palm oil, palm plantations in Indonesia and Borneo, like just ripping up the rainforest and wetlands, dislocating communities, forcing smallholders off their land who become you know, basically plantation workers for slave wages mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, orangutan habitat being destroyed, you know, like how, you know, like like not not being conscious about who, how you're purchasing your material. And the same thing with diet, you know, your, your plates of farm and you know, your, your forks of pitchfork and your knives of butchery knife, you know, what does your farm look like? You know, are you, mm-hmm. are you supporting a farmer who's taking care of his land and taking care of his people? And, and any livestock or lead a humane life and, and, a, and a quick humane death and uh, or, uh, or, or or are you you know offloading to the machine the machine that's just mm-hmm. ripping the planet apart and you know and that's just what people default to and companies default to so we so after a tsunami hit Sri Lanka uh, right yeah. yeah we had Gary Lassone our German German born uh, ace um, uh, he already We'd come together on hemp fiber to um, we put hemp seed oil into the soap. It's one of the first activist things we did. Got in a big fight with the DEA over import of hemp seed oil, which we eventually won. Um, but when when the tsunami hit, um, you know we were like, you know, Gero, I want to. We need to. We want to go fair trade anyway. We want to know who our farmers are. And Sri Lanka's got amazing coconut industry. Was partnering with all these coconut farmers and. So one thing led to another, and we set up our, uh, a fair trade regenerative organic operation in Sri Lanka to supply our coconut oil. We have a really cool project in Ghana for our palm oil. Smallholders there intercropping with cocoa, banana, and cassava. Two and cocoa and palm are two of the worst crops in monoculture on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cocoa's got like literally sl- you know child slavery involved. But we're showing that when you do a dynamic interplanting, what's called dynamic ag forestry or multi-strata ag forestry, uh, where you look at a natural ecosystem, you've got tall trees, mid-level trees, and ground cover. Mm-hmm. When you take that and you intercrop complementary species in the right understanding how the canopies fill in, that you'll double the yield then in monocultures. You'll minimize weed and pest pressure. The, the biomass yield, the, the farmer incomes are way up. You're sequestering huge amounts of carbon into the earth. So we act, anyways, we activated on that. Um, but, you know, but the most, for me, it's like, okay, well, these are like the solutions, but how do you get the shift in consciousness to get people to really care about this? And that, for me, is really the psychedelic integration project. Okay, interesting. Yeah. That came basically a long time ago out of your yeah. early experience, and it kind of materializes, like, let's say, 10, 15 years later, which is super interesting, right? But I mean... And how did you get involved with, with MAPS then? So that, um, right, so, so, you know, hemp was our initial uh, activist mm-hmm. fight, and that's like how me and Ryan met, and a lot of mm-hmm. our key upper management Bronners came together around this big fight on hemp, and hemp was at the nexus of uh, drug policy reform, the most ridiculous example of an out-of-control drug war that was uh, making a, a non-drug agricultural crop a Schedule One substance and a really good sustainable crop for sustainable agriculture. And, and like I was just talking about, hemp grows like a weed. You don't need a whole bunch of synthetics. And, it, and in a regenerative organic system, it's good to have a, a crop that can outcompete weeds and reduce the weed pressure for subsequent crops. So, so hemp was well-positioned. And um, so, and, but it was really a way to get uh, some some body blows in on the on the drug war machine initially, 
as well. Um, you know, and so we were fought, and, and actually we had two big court victories in the Ninth Circuit Court on Bob's, Bob Marley's birthday, February 6, 2002, and two, February 6, 2004. February 6, really? Yeah. <laughs> so so two, and and then in parallel, we were supporting medical marijuana mm -hmm. and uh, in, in California and all the big fight of implementing that. Um, and then, but just also appreciating Rick from afar and MAPS work, and they were trying to break the government monopoly on marijuana that... El Soli runs at the University of Mississippi this like really crappy weed that like that's the only approved weed for any studies and it was just this crap and um, Rick was trying to break that monopoly mm -hmm. and um, so I met Rick at Burning Man in 2005 mm -hmm. I, was, I came to Burning Man and I'm, I'm like oh wow Maps is here so I went over and I got this download um, at, at the Maps Dome they're doing these kind of speaker series and and uh, a panel of ladies was talking about uh, Sanctuary. And Sanctuary, and it's now Zendo, but Sanctuary at the time was a safe space where um, basically if you're having an overwhelming psychedelic experience on the playa, um, just it's a, you know it's a pretty intense environment, and you know it's going to be really amazing, but it can also be really overwhelming. Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, people can have just <laughs> a lot of shit come up on them, yeah. and, and 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 you know having to go to a med tent or have you know that is like the worst possible like environment. But sanctuary is basically a, a safe space where, where sitters, um, you know, just kind of create a nice, safe, quiet space. Come in, just kind of calm you down, kind of hold the space. And just help you like navigate and you know through this really difficult material that may be coming up, whatever traumatic stuff, and just really help people um, do like amazing work. And so I, I learned all about sanctuary, and then I introduced myself to Rick after. I'm like, hey Rick, you know, I'm David, and doing all this stuff on hemp, but my my real goal here is LSD, you know, and I'm, I'm gonna, someday I'm going to help you. And that was my joke, like back in the day, like when a reporter would call and say, isn't hemp a stock in Western marijuana? And like the official answer is like, no, well, I mean, some of us support that, but a lot of us are conservative farmers and, you know, hemp's about nutritious seed and, and fiber and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the secret answer was, no, get it right, it's about LSD. But anyways, <laughs> so that, uh, so now we can joke about that freely. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so just met Rick and we like had an amazing connection. And then that night, um, we went out, you know, we all, all dosed in and went out on, on a big adventure. And one of our campmates actually took a, a, chalk, a mushroom truffle, which she shouldn't have been doing because she was on some kind of antibiotic or something. And, um, and so like a half hour out, she's just not doing well at all. And, and I'm like, okay, well, I just heard about sanctuary. We got to take her to sanctuary. So we like, get all the way over to sanctuary. It's like a half mile, you know, she's like dead weight. I'm like, oh my gosh. And, and get to sanctuary and I meet Rick again. And, um, and this time it's in his therapist role, which, you know, Rick, he one day wants to be a psychedelic therapist. You know, Maps is just, you know, he, his career, one day he wants to be a psychedelic therapist. So he, he's, he's the, just at, just in case some people might not know him. So he's the founder of Maps and now he's basically the most important person for a psychedelic yeah so introducing psychedelic therapy yeah rick saying, rick yeah. yeah he's you know he's got the you know how you know the trauma of the holocaust generational uh, really driving him yeah. you know like we want peace on earth and he like me sees like integrating our psychedelic uh, allies is the the most important thing we can possibly do to like heal people up heal the traumas heal, you know break the depression get get people healed up and loving each other and 
Yeah, um, so go back to the sanctuary. We don't yeah. want to hear that story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I got to meet Rick again, and he's mm -hmm. now his therapist. You know, I met him as head of maps. Now I meet him as therapist, mm -hmm. Rick, Rick the therapist. And he's so beautiful. And, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah bring her in. And we like, lay, lay my friend down. And, you know, she, he gets her a bucket. And she's like, Ugh, you know, pukes. And, you know, but he's just calming her down. And we're all holding space, like super vibrating, you know, on the L. Just like, but it's like beautiful. And like, I remember giving my friend like this big hug. And, um, and Rick's like, yeah, you know, you guys can leave. Just come back in the morning and, and, and come get, get your friend. So, you know, we go out and have all this big adventure. And the next morning, I come and get my friend. And she's just like, oh, my God, Rick's an angel. You know, it was the most amazing experience. Mm -hmm. and, and just realizing the power of having, like, what can be just a really traumatic, difficult experience. Like, you know, creating these spaces where, you know, that, you know, you can just process that and just really navigate to a really successful outcome. So it was this beautiful introduction to Rick and to MAPS in both the policy advocacy of like integrating our allies and as a therapist, you know, in, in this harm reduction mm -hmm. space. So really powerful initial meeting with Rick. And, you know, and, and then as, you know, companies, so, you know, I've covered some of our different issue areas, but, you know, more or less like a quarter of our philanthropic efforts is in terms of drug policy reform of one sort or another. So industrial hemp was important, um, but now we've won that. Medical marijuana was a big front, pretty much winning that. We're ending cannabis prohibition. Um, my, you know, we, we've been involved in most of the state fights. Um, and I joined MAPS in 20, oh man, I think 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I was asked to by Rick when... Um, Oh, when Ashana Haley, so Ashana was a transgendered um, rock star, amazing person who had founded a, uh, some, some kind of high-tech company and sold it and made a lot of money. And MDMA really helped her find her truth. And she was a, a, a board member on, uh, on MAPS and really strategic and really helping Rick and, and John Gilmore, who's a, a, like the number three at Sun Microsystems and, a, and another like really strategic high-level cat. Um, they were kind of like, you know, the, the heart of MAPS. So when she died, um, Rick invited me on to fill her shoes. And she left five million bucks to MAPS in her will. And... Um, so, yeah, it was just an amazing, you know, opportunity really to help Rick rock the most important project I feel in the world, which is integrating our allies as, as fast as possible. Um, and we've pledged, my family has pledged a um, million dollars a year for five years uh, to help move MDMA through FDA approval process mm -hmm. for treatment-resistant PTSD. Um, which is pretty much happening now, right? I mean, yeah, we're in phase three yeah. and we're very successful. It should be approved in 2022. Um, and, you know, Rick kind of, you know, MDMA in a way is like has the least baggage and, and, and then you're healing up the trauma of veterans, especially. But, but you know, basically choosing um, uh, a medicine and a condition where like no other pharma approach or therapeutic approach is, is really getting at the problem of, a lot of these really traumatized people, you know, whether it's rape victims or, or, or soldiers in combat. You know, when you have that severe PTSD, like you just, you know, without having MDMA or, or, or some other psychedelic medicine involved that help you really get in there and, and process really hard, difficult experiences and emotions, it's, it's almost like open heart surgery without an anesthetic. You mm -hmm. know, it's like you just mm -hmm. need the medicine just really helps. And, you know, and, and so Rick very strategically identified MDMA and PTSD as like, this is what the first, this is what, this is what we're going to break, break it open with. So... 
Um, and it's also poetic and kind of healing up the trauma of soldiers, like the countercultural split, you know, healing up the trauma of the soldiers and that whole cultural split of the 60s in a way is, you know, kind of being healed. And like we, we have so many veteran advocates, you know, mm-hmm. veterans that are, are committing suicide at the rate of 22 people a day, way more than actually been lost in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and it's completely solvable. I mean, not that we'll save every one of them, but most of them with MDMA therapy, with ayahuasca, with, with their plant medicines. I mean, these indigenous ways of healing um, ourselves and, and, and relating to each other and being in the world, like that's the answer to these huge epidemics of depression and anxiety and, and addiction and, you know, the, the, the core problems of, of the Western disease mm-hmm. um, is, is these medicines that are, you know, when they're, when they're approached with intention and respect and, and, you know, you're with a trained facilitator who can yeah. really help you, you know. So, I mean, you, yeah. you mentioned earlier when you met Rick and he also obviously got, seems that he got involved because of his, let's say, Holocaust journey or mm-hmm. trauma yeah. from his family. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in what way do you think And this might be, if there's more approval, um, basically a really probably very popular tool to kind of help sometimes the generation after. Not, I mean, the, I mean, it's often that the um, it's often a generation that's kind of surpassed, and that the children of survivors are sometimes not really affected. But then the um, grandchildren of survivors, for example, are very much affected through depression or kind of all kinds of yeah. let's say I'm not going to say mental health but kind of problems but just several different traumas maybe without going into detail now but so do you think this could become in the end like a real specific tool to erase the holocaust trauma at least not of course the remembering the holocaust but the trauma yeah I think um, the I mean, not just Holocaust, but all the traumas that are ricocheting down the generations. I mean, slavery and colonialism and just all the, just, you know, the, all kinds of traumatized communities, populations. Um, absolutely. And in my experience, I can share my story um, that uh, I actually today was just visiting our ancestral home in Heilbronn. And, um, and our factory there, and our factory, you know, the, the Nazi who got it for one Deutschmark and um, sold it to the Frank family in, in the late 40s. And the Frank family is a multi-generational uh, rat, rat family making um, uh, die-casting metal parts for, like, high-tech and, and automobiles and stuff. And Nicky Frank's rad, and he's, uh, he's now running the uh, business. And I just had lunch with him. He's, you know, we're, 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 he's just an awesome cat. Um, but I was just... You know, visiting ancestral home and, and, and introducing my partner Mia to the, my ancestors there, and, um, and and yeah, absolutely. So, so this time though, there's a cemetery. I'm going to kind of tell a story, and it, and it relates to its generational trauma processing with medicine, and it begins with. Um, and I'll, I'll just say, like, I was in a... Okay, I'll just begin at Burning Man. So, um, at <laughs> begins Burning, at murder. If everything begins at Burning Man. Well, so yeah. we, what we do is we... To, uh, when I was about 10 years ago going through a real tough time, I was asking my dad and my pop, you know, he'd been dead ten, for 10 years. And, but, you know, in a way, our relationship had deepened since. And I was like, pop, you know, how'd you do it? You know, how'd you, you know, raise a family and run a business? You know, I was just, like, really struggling. 
and I remember like the joy of foam that we had brought the world like it was just you know this ecstatic experience and like because when he died it was just overwhelming we had to shut down that business we sold it off to another another special effects house just concentrated on Bronner's but I was just remembering like wow you know how much joy we brought and what a magician he was making these contraptions to make foam and just how much fun we had just opening up a fire hose of foam on the world and it's just this ecstatic beautiful experience and so I built a, a foam machine based on, along with Edwin, along uh, uh, based on one of his late designs for a German-owned Sri Lankan hotel, actually, and um, and brought it to Burning Man, and and was clearing out blocks of people who were like, "What the hell?" And you know, and like we're just blasting foam, and actually did the most cardinal sin at the burn, which is you know, leave no trace. Like we were just. You know, people were bringing us water, and we were just blasting them with foam, and like made like an acre of like turquoise water from all the body paint, wow. which is like the number one thing you're not supposed to do at Burning Man. <laughs> but that was the that was the that was the, the the birth of the foam. So so fast forward to 2013, like we were then we went real big, and we got now we have containers like plexiglass containers that contain the, the gray water, and there's no more spillage and very popular camp to come and get you know blasted with foam and it's super fun we got DJs it's, it's amazing and we're the host camp for Zendo as well and and what happened is some of our Jewish guests or like especially this one lady the rather than really experiencing the joy of the whole you know moment just get triggered generationally and then the like being packed into the into the plexus trailer they're triggering the Nazis giving the soap and the towel to the Oh. To the Jewish victims, you know, okay. getting them, pacifying them into the gas chambers, and then, and then and, and because they weren't the impression, they get a shower, kind of. Yeah, just like, seeing I mean, people but, being mass, yeah. you know, hurt and like you know, and all the screaming and yelling—that's all ecstatic and beautiful. They're just hearing it. They're going way the other direction. And interesting. And so this lady who founded this Jewish theme camp, Milk and Honey, they do like a seder uh, out at the burn. Um, Ali, uh, I forget her last name, but Ali wrote this amazing essay called Saifa, and it was a play on the on the German word for soap and how unsafe she felt in this experience, and and reached out to contact me. He's like, hey, I just wrote this thing. I had this experience, and um, and I was like, whoa, well, here's my, you know lineage you know i mean i've got the holocaust i mean directly in my history and my dad developed firefighting foam and it's amazing and i'm honoring my granddad and my dad bringing together this joyous thing but oh my gosh you know and that year we came to Halbron and i and it was like one of the first times or was like the first time i went into the old home and saw the bronze plaques and got in touch with Bertolt and, and Francisca and then feeling my granddad and my great aunts like playing in the streets as kids and the enormity of the tragedy, you know, as things just started going sideways. And, um, and, and I went around the corner and there was this park and I go, whoa, it's so beautiful. I feel drawn to it and it's a cemetery. And I'm like, whoa. And I feel, and there's this feeling of the dead saluting the dead like just the Germans like saluting their Jewish brothers and sisters this feeling of solidarity and salute and and I'm feeling like like yeah m most of these were 
Nazis. They're just kids, you know, just fucking slaughtered in this conflagration of uh, that engulfed the world of World War II and just this huge this generational slaughter, and you know, around in Europe and Asia and everywhere. And then just feeling like the life force coming forward to all of us, like that karmic inheritance, like you bear the generation bears and inherits and tries to vibrate it up and passes it on with all the trauma that they didn't process and maybe some new trauma, but hopefully overall it's getting better. Um, and just feeling that coming forward. And so for the burn that year, um, there's the following burn. So I tell Ali, like, yeah, you know, I'm, uh, this is how, how I'll do it. We'll get, uh, I took a picture of the plaque of the stumble stones with the mm-hmm. you know, date of birth, date of deportation, mm-hmm. date of death. For, for where they died, where, also where? Yeah, was, also where. It's the region Stott and in Auschwitz. Um, and made a picture and we made a sign that said, you know, to our Jewish uh, guests, um, who, who may be experiencing any form of generational trauma, we hold you in our hearts until you move through the to the moment, present moment of celebration. Behind, you know, made like a nice sign, just to, like, but not like wanting to trigger it. You know, like we wanted, okay, we want to acknowledge it, but not like trigger it if you're not thinking about it. You know, so it was this kind of delicate dance. So, so Ali came up. It was like Wednesday of the burn. It's a new moon, um, and me and Mia just dosed in like an hour prior and Ali's like comes up he's like hey you know yeah I want to check it out what you got going on and this was a year we were celebrating um, Albert Hoffman and mm-hmm. and uh, agro- it was actually Reformation so every year we have a different theme so Reformation we always put foam in our name so it mm-hmm. changes every year mm-hmm. so Reformation because the theme was Da Vinci so we were the you know everyone's going to do Renaissance stuff so we're, but we were the Reformation and and okay. the Reformation, like we were celebrating Albert as a modern day Da Vinci. Interesting. Uh, you know, I'm always going to figure out some way to get psychedelic. Yeah, in it. obviously. And, but you know, a mystic <laughs> chemist who's like just mm-hmm. so beautiful and, and, and amazing. And, 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 and you know, and in the last chapter of his book, uh, uh, LSD, my problem child, is just amazing. And it's about that alienation, disconnection from the from the world of the modern Western ego and that the Greeks had the solution with the mysteries of Eleusis and you had mm-hmm. this initiation that would restore the connection. Well, this this topic, it's so interesting you mentioned that because this is so coming back right now that um, a lot of kind of, let's say, the classic European culture that European culture is based on, like the Greek culture, mm-hmm. is actually related to psychedelic potions. And I mean... I cannot imagine when I ever heard this and like going to school or kind of studying yeah. anything. This is just really, and I mean, like Aristoteles, I think we had this, that in the other podcast. He's even writing about this, like how he kind of experienced that to write, to experience kind of life and death and then write about it afterwards. So, which has a really big contribution to any kind of big um, cultural work coming out of. Greek philosophy. Basically. Yeah, right, because all the playwrights, all the philosophers, everyone, I mean, all the major figures were initiates of Eleusis, and, you know, even slaves could be initiates, and the only ones forbidden were murderers, those who committed murder, and even they could be okay. initiated if they went through certain purification rites. Okay. And so, and just, I guess, for everyone who doesn't know, the, uh, I guess for your audience, uh, the mysteries of Eleusis, so... The word, our word for mysticism comes from the mystes, those who have been initiated into the rites of Eleusis and are forbidden to speak of what they've seen. But we have these indirect accounts from, like, you know, from, from early Greek anti- uh, 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 antiquity, like pre-classical Greece, in the late Roman antiquity, mm-hmm. 
this, the, the, the mysteries operated for over 2,000 years. And, um, and, and like Cicero, like wrote, you know, blessed are they who have, have you know, been initiated for they have seen the, the source of life in its end and are reconciled to the, you know, the, the source. And, um, and there's like these different indirect accounts of, of this ray. And it was built around the Demeter Persephone, Demeter, the Demeter Persephone myth was the main architecture. And, you know, Demeter is the mother goddess and Persephone is like her daughter, grain goddess, kidnapped by Hades into the underworld. And, um, you know, the whole world's in famine and Demeter's, or Demeter's grieving, the whole world's in, in famine. Zeus intercedes with Hades, all right, you got to give her up. And, and, and this is kind of the patriarchal version of the myth. Um, and, but then tricks Persephone eating six pomegranate seeds. And so, uh, so, so Persephone is reunited with her mother, you know, it's spring, it's glorious. It's, and, and, but then she has to spend six months of the year in the underworld. As, um, and that's like, on one superficial level, it's the explanation of the seasons. But on the way deeper level that like, Albert Hoffman was like getting at and like, why, and why was this so important? Um, that you know, Persephone was you know it was the choice. It was a choice to, to, to self-sacrifice to regenerate the world, and it was her choice. Um, and it's very, I think, related to the Jesus Jehovah, you know, myth. Very similar mm-hmm. architecture of okay. like you know Jesus swallowed by the world of sin. Wow. His love sacrifices and regenerates the world. It's an archetypal truth and reality mm-hmm. of the deep mysteries of life and death and rebirth and love and and. And so this experience was kind of reliably precipitated in ancient Greek times. And this was the kind of solution to this, like, disconnected ego, like, you know, looking at matter formally, you know, like cutting it up and exploiting it and not realizing it's living and more one with it and, you know, like overcoming that that disconnection. But yeah, so anyway, so I I definitely feel that the medicines can really help process Mm -hmm. trauma from, you know, this life and then prior generations and just that because that ricocheting, that trauma ricocheting down the generations, especially the male aggression that's just fucking up the world, um, you know, that that's what we need to heal up. And, you know, like the, the fathers punishing the sons and, and, and you know, who in turn punish the sons. And, you know, and I, I love working with uh, uh, Michael Palm calls him Fritz. So he's German American, okay. and he's an amazing cat. He's Fritz. Yeah, you know, we'll call him Fritz. Okay. But uh, he's an amazing German American, uh, who's a high-level shaman. He's an in- initiate of a. He's taking a Bodhisattva vow and I forget which Zen tradition, but a high-level medicine worker. He's worked with a lot of us, mm-hmm. and he healed up some deep rage. You know, he had this huge rage from his Nazi father, just like fucking, you know, on him. He healed it up, and he's just, you know, so. Yeah, healing up that trauma is uh, is uh, yeah a key part mm-hmm. of what these medicines can do, and Holocaust trauma and colonialism of all kinds, and, and and slavery, and just the drip 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 of constant racism and patriarchal, homophobic, sexist shit that people deal with, you know, and both the perpetrators and and the victims, you know, the mm-hmm. perpetrators. Like what I realized in that experience in, in Amsterdam was what I was doing was I was doing it myself. Like, you know, everything you're doing to someone else, oneness is the truth. And whatever you're doing to somebody else, you're doing it to yourself. You know, like that's, that's just the truth. So, yeah. So these medicines, it's about healing up all of us. And I'm involved in a campaign in Oregon called the South Simon Mm -hmm. Service Initiative. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And the the husband, wife, Mm -hmm. Thomas Schrieckert, they work with domestic violence, both perpetrators and victims. That's their mm-hmm. work and Cherie's got the Holocaust in her lineage and 
they see the medicine, how important it is, to process this trauma. And Carlos uh, Flazola and Larry Norris of uh, Decriminalized Nature. Mm-hmm. So, so Carlos healed up, you know, just the mega, you know, trauma from colonialization and just the, you know, all the fucking sh- warped up shit, you know, that, you know, he was able to just on a high dose mushroom journey, just psh, liberate himself. And he's all about, you know, decriminalize. We have a right to these plants that grow on the ground, you know, that, you know, that we don't need pharmaceutical met, you know, and it's a really powerful new movement totally down with exactly. and, and yeah. I, I, you know I, I totally believe in like breaking the pharma and going through that route and it's given us everything in a way in preparing this moment but now yeah criminalized nature like making this amazing case that like we should be able to cultivate and grow and gift and, and use these medicines ourselves and not everybody can afford therapy in fact some of the most in need of therapy are the ones who are not going to mm-hmm. be able to afford it mm-hmm. so to be able to grow your own medicine and sit and hold space for each other is very important so so and and uh, that that's a good connection to to basically to to the last question <laughs> so i mean how do you see the i mean obviously like like you said a lot of kind of decriminalization movements are picking up speed right now and everything but i mean still and also like you said i said that a lot of people most people say that it should have like a structure that you have like a either a therapist guiding you through experiences and that the so-called set and setting is in yeah and like drunk driving like set and setting needs to be just as common as as drunk driving exactly like drunk don't drink and drive designated you need a designated driver Mm -hmm. you need set and setting um, so I mean how do you think this is gonna play out in the next let's say a couple of years because obviously California is just very it's going to happen very soon or like even other like Colorado is already there so yeah so it's a good question so um, I kind of had this initial skepticism of the decriminalization movement along the lines of these are very powerful medicines you can't just like drop them into the culture like you know like it's you know we don't have Uh, like the therapeutic setting in a way is our an- analog to the indigenous ceremonial mm-hmm. container and you know set and setting is so important and you know you you know high dose psychedelic sessions like is being pioneered in john hopkins and and ucla and and, and nyu you know i mean the, it's just you know it's important that people are properly prepared that the set and setting is ideal for the really therapeutic healing spiritual outcome and so yeah i was initially pretty skeptical but What I realized is that um, both in Denver and in Oakland, that there, that hand in hand with decriminalization is a full blown education effort on set and setting, on proper preparation, proper integration, and that the movement is very is not just about decriminalizing medicines to go party with. Mm-hmm. It's all about self healing. Mm-hmm. It's it's Carlos. It's all about healing up the trauma. He's like, look, man, I these are the indigenous medicines. You know that. You know, the critique, like, oh, this is the white people criminalizing their drugs. He's like, no, dude, this is, a, you know, the most marginalized communities. Like, these are our indigenous medicines to heal our trauma. And that it's elitist that to say that, you know, because mostly therapists and leaders have their own access yeah, outside of the therapeutic course, yeah, model. Sure. And it's like an elitist thing to say, like, oh, you know, you, you can't handle these medicines. Then you need to wait for this. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like, no, dude, like, you know, we, we can all figure this out. And as a community based, like, we can figure this out. And that's what they're doing. It's like they're actively promoting and creating integration circles and best practices and information. So Spore is formed in Denver. It's a really mm-hmm. great organization Spot, mm-hmm. from Kevin Matthews and Duffy and, and that crew. 
really cool. And then Erie, Larry Norris's uh, E-R-I-E, uh, entheo I forget exactly what it stands for, but um, entheogenic, something, some, some integration. But just doing amazing work on, you know, best practices and, you know, respectful. and But, you know, putting forward a decriminalized model as, you know, like, look, these are medicines that are our birthright that can really heal us up in a deep way and they should not just be locked up in this like kind of therapeutic medical pharma model um and uh so yeah so i've come to really respect that movement and have uh, and actually our uh director of social action is adam eidinger mm-hmm. um also dc based along with brian <laughs> okay and uh and adam was the campaign manager that legalized weed in 2014 in dc and we were the main financial backers of that and, uh, you know, when you win in D.C., you're talking to the local leadership or, mm. or your local media is, the, you know, talking to the national leadership. Sure. So yeah. now we're going to do a de- decrim nature campaign in D.C. Okay. So that's underway. We just had, like, an incredible hearing. We had veterans. We have, you know, uh, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions vets. is form- SEAL Team 6, you know, like kind of the elite special forces squad in, in, in the U.S. and the special forces are bearing the brunt of modern warfare and they're just fucking epidemics of trauma and alcoholism and fucking they're just you know it's a really horrible situation but so now they've got like all these special forces getting healed up and just are very powerful advocates for for the okay. medicine um, we have end of life advocate like we had a doctor the physician who heads up the integrative unit of the George Washington Hospital with a submitted testimony our main proposer is a lady Melissa Lavasani, and she healed up. Um, she works in city government, and she healed up severe anti and postpartum depression, like fucking horrible postpartum depression, with 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 uh, ayahuasca and then microdosing psilocybin. Just you know, turned it around. I mean, she was spinning, and so many ladies or, or women suffer from this. Really, you know, there's so much stigma around all these things, you know, and and but to have these medicines help with. Um, you know, be accessible for something like postpartum depression, which generally has to survive. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So she's our main proposer, and if you go to uh, Decrim uh, Nature DC or Google Decrim mm-hmm. Nature DC mm-hmm. and Google the press release for this, there's links to all that written testimony. Just amazing to, to read. Um, so yeah, so we feel like all these strategies are key. I mean, we're totally committed to the FDA approval route for not only MDMA but psilocybin, and you know, we support USONA uh, as well. Um, and um, and then the Oregon, what we're doing there is a therapeutic model, but outside of pharma. So basically, mm-hmm. me kind of replicating the same kind of therapist training and that whole model, but making it accessible to all adults without a qualifying diagnosis. That you know, like we're all struggling. We all can use the medicine. So, but you know, bringing that kind of best therapeutic container in practice and having a kind of a program to light. It's not. A training program itself it's actually a licensing of training programs but we're saying you know we're not saying like one and only one training program is okay but all the training programs have to meet basic criteria like you have to have you know you know whatever you have to be trained up on indigenous methods you have mm-hmm. to be trained up on the best western you know it's just like you have to have these minimum and you have to put in this many hours under supervision before whatever so that the organ model is really really important and then, and then the decriminalized nature is coming in with like, okay, like, well, therapy's great, but a lot of us can't access that, and we have a right to the medicine into our own mm-hmm. healing. So I think all of these these movements are, are super crucial and, and important. Okay. No. Perfect. 
Thank you so much. It was very, very um, interesting mm -hmm. because it was the first podcast where we really talked about this possible Holocaust yeah. subject, which obviously comes up in several different scenarios. Oh. And that was very interesting. Thank you. Oh, and that I you talked about this. Yeah, yeah well, I, I wanted to also share that today, you know, mm -hmm. went to visit the ancestor home uh, uh, again to introduce my partner, Mia. And um, and then went to that same cemetery, and this time, you know, it's just right. It's the park right around the block. And this time, you know, the last time it was this big kind of intense generational trauma, you know. And but then the the feeling that salute and solidarity of the dead, and just the unity of the Germans and the Jews, and just the you know, just that feeling and the feeling of all, all sides of the conflict that engulfed the world. You know, just the dead of in solidarity and with us right you gotta go get it and um but this time it was like oh this is their playground this is where they this mm. was their this is, they grew up here playing around and me and Mia were climbing up on the I got some pictures here of us climbing up on like the stuff and just feeling them like as kids as playing and just really resonating to that and so so like feeling of course the tragedy of it all but you know this time just really like wow this was just this is where they played and You know, just, just really getting in touch with that. We apologized that we didn't have a proper goodbye with David, but our conversation was so long and uh, so interesting that we had to rush at one point. But I'm sure David will be back on the show very soon with other psychedelic-related <laughs> topics. So, and as always, if you want to send feedback and um, let us know what you think about the podcast and anything related to psychedelics, Please go on our website, www.thenewhealthclub.de, and email us some feedback. We're very happy to hear from you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.